What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Financial Analyst Warrior podcast, episode number seven. My name is Miguel Romain. And my name is Mikola Domenko. Today we have a very special guest for you, Mike Carmody from Past Tense is here to talk to us about what Past Tense is all about, how is it helping CFA candidates better prepare for the CFA exam, and what are his vision for Past Tense going forward. So let's go talk to him. So we have Mike Carmody here from Past Tense, uh, and we're really thrilled to have you. Welcome, Mike, to uh, Financial Analyst Warrior Podcast. Great. Thank you very much. I'm uh, glad to be here. Well, before we, we talk about past tense, actually, I'd like to ask you about your background and your history. Like, what, what did you do before and where, like, where you come from? Sure. I, I am an actuary by training. I actually graduated from uh, a university in Nashville, Tennessee in 1991, uh, then embarked on my actuarial career. And to, to be an actuary, you have to pass a series of examinations. I took uh, several of them while I was in the university and then it took me a few years after a school as well to continue uh, taking the exam so it's a it's a long process to get through them but I finally finished those up in 1995 uh, so during that time I was working at an insurance company in both uh, Louisville Kentucky and then uh, out in Des Moines Iowa and actuaries uh, measure future financial contingent risk um, and my emphasis on the actuary side was on the investments so it's a uh, very similar uh, to what uh, the CFA uh, candidates uh, would do as well or charter holders would do uh, so I focused on the investment side but then also had to work on the liability side as well just to understand how insurance companies can manage their assets uh, to the liabilities that they have uh, but after I finished my actuarial exams in 1995, um, I was relieved somewhat because now I've been taking exams for four or five years, so I was glad to be done. Uh, but I was I was surprised just a few months after that that I actually missed the studying part. Um, so that shocked me a little bit. Uh, it certainly shocked my wife. Uh, so. I had a you missed the studying part, like you didn't study, or <laughs> no? <laughs> now after I finished the exams, I, I didn't have anything to study for. Oh, I, you missed. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. I missed actually studying, and I think what it was is I, I missed really the quiet time that I could have while I while I was studying. Um, so I had I had a friend of mine that had volunteered to uh, teach a prep course for an actuarial exam at a university in Iowa. And uh, he got a little bit behind on his preparation, so he asked me to, to fill in for him. Uh, so I took over part of that course and uh, realized that I really liked studying and I really enjoyed teaching. Uh, so that that's really what launched my uh, teaching and exam prep career in the actuarial community. Um, so I started that in around 1996, and uh, we did it together for a little bit, and then he decided it wasn't for him. Um, so then I went on uh, and did that by myself, and it was under just actuarial materials or JAM, is uh, what I what I did that under for the actuarial community, and I focused on the investment track uh, for the actuarial exams, and I did uh, I created study guides uh, that people could use, and then I also taught a lot of live uh, seminars, so I would. I teach these seminars typically one month in the spring and one month in the fall because the actuarial exams were given twice a year. 
and I would just fly to different cities and, and have a five-day class with actuaries. Um, I think my largest class was 200 uh, students that I had in there for the week. Uh, and that was just really a, a lot of fun for me to, to teach the students. And you know, probably one of the, the biggest things I learned through that whole process of training actuaries over a decade to pass the exams is they were all very bright, um, all very, uh, for the most part, very dedicated and studied hard. Uh, but oftentimes they spent so much time learning the material, they really didn't allocate time to studying the test. And so I, I really felt for them because they they really knew enough to pass the exam, but then they would fail. And you know, much like uh, CFA candidates, they, they may spend 300 hours preparing for an exam and then you fail it, so it's as if it was a waste of time. And that's what was happening in the actuarial world, that the pass rate was similar to the CFA exams, around 40%. Uh, so that means more than half of the people were actually failing the exam. So I, I spent a fair amount of my time not just teaching the material, but also teaching the exam and how can you study smarter and how can you prepare yourself better uh, to perform well on the exam day. Okay, so Mike, um, I just want to go back a bit uh, in the past. So why did you choose to study actuary? How did you pick that field? Uh, sure, that's, that's a very good question because the actuarial field is uh, really a relatively obscure field. There's not that many actuaries. Uh, most of them are located in North America. Uh, but when I started at the university, I, I was an engineering major, at least uh, my first semester. Uh, and during that first semester, I had to take an engineering drawing class and realized quickly that I, I did not like engineering, uh, so I couldn't do that. Um, then uh, very soon after that, I took a personality type test at the university that tried to match your personality with a personality of a career out there, just to give you some ideas what career might suit your personality. And when mine came back, um, the first one was an actuary and the second one was a professor. Um, I knew what a professor was, uh, but I didn't know what an actuary was, so I had to look that up and was told what they did. And I was thrilled to know that I could major in mathematics and actually get a job. Um, so I, I got to bypass all the engineering classes and strictly major in math and minor in finance. And so then my career took me, not surprisingly, to not just be an actuary, but to be a an actuary teacher. So really, I combined the two careers that suited me best, which is a professor and an actuary. So that's really how I got into it. So I had not even heard of an actuary until I got to the university. Yeah, and you mentioned something. Uh, it's it's a very obscure job, and it, it is in, up here in Canada as well. And yeah. uh, I was talk, talking to a friend of mine, he's Egyptian, and he said, in Egypt, there's five actuaries total okay. <laughs> and there's 80 million people in Egypt so that tells you like how obscure it is really uh, it, especially it, it, outside it, of the US do you have any idea why uh, it, it is uh, really small and, and in some ways um, there's not that many people that want to be actuaries it's it's a unique blend of somebody that really likes mathematics yeah. so you have to really understand calculus and statistics and like that, uh, but at the same time you have to like uh, being in business. And oftentimes the people that like mathematics the most are the ones um, that you can think of as the academic type. So they want to be in a, you know, a teacher or doing research somewhere and not really have to interact with people. And then the, those that are usually good at business uh, don't necessarily like the theory of the mathematics behind it. Um, so I think it is 
somewhat of a rare blend that somebody actually really likes the math behind the scenes, but they want to apply it in a business sense. Um, so I think that's why it's rare. Also, you don't need that many actuaries um, in the insurance or in the pension world uh, because one actuary can manage a large block of insurance policies. They just have to add you know, an extra zero or two at the end. Uh, but the calculations themselves, they can just as easily do for a million policies as they could for a thousand policies. And apart from uh, insurance and pension, is there any other fields where you might need uh, an actuary or is it just only these two things? Uh, th those have historically been the main two areas in the pension field and in the insurance field. Um, the Actuary Society or the Society of Actuaries has tried hard over the years to get actuaries into other uh, fields as well. And so that's why some actuaries have ventured over into the investment field, which is uh, where obviously a lot of charter holders will work as well. Um, but uh, but they haven't had a huge amount of success just because those outside the insurance and the pension world uh, really don't understand as well what the background of actuaries. Uh, when you're at an insurance company, um, actuaries uh, really are given a lot of respect because they're they're the main profession at the insurance company that really understands the big picture. The actuary understands the liabilities, the actuary understands the assets, they understand how it fits together. And uh, so many of the other professionals at the insurance company only understand one aspect of it. So uh, actuaries really are given a lot of deference at those type places. Okay, and how, how would you, let's say, describe the, the difference between the actuarial program and the CFA program? Uh, sure. Um, you know, in the in the exam process for actuaries, uh, back when I took it, and it's it's changed a bit over the years, uh, but it was a, a bit of a longer process. There was a series of ten exam examinations that you had to take. Uh, you would typically take one every six months. Uh, so that means if you passed every single one, you're still looking at a five-year process to get through the exam. So that's it's a little it was a little bit more of an involved uh, program. The first half of the actuarial exams were all a multiple choice and they were more mathematical in nature. They would start with the calculus and statistics. And then the last half of the examinations, which was the ones I focused on when I was teaching my seminars, were the essay exams. And those are somewhat similar to what they have on the level three exam for the CFA curriculum uh, where they're going to have some essay questions in there. So that was more challenging. Um, that you had to really know the material because you'd have one question and you were supposed to spend 15 to 20 minutes answering that one uh, question on there. Uh, I also think uh, a difference between the two, the actuarial uh, examination process from the curriculum perspective was not as organized as the CFA Institute. And, and I think part of that's probably because the actuarial uh, the number of actuaries taking the exams is so much smaller than the number of CFA candidates that they just didn't have as many resources to really create uh, organized products. And so that meant the study uh, providers um, like myself, one of our jobs was to take the material that was somewhat disorganized and then organize it so it made it a little bit easier to study. Uh, I was quite impressed uh, going through the CFA examinations, uh, realized our with how organized the material was. I just thought they, they put it together well, it all seemed to fit together, you didn't have inconsistencies in it, so I thought they did a really good job of editing the material on that. 
And you said how many people uh, pass the uh, actuarial exam every year in the U.S.? Uh, typically, it was about a 40% pass rate. Um, when I was teaching the exams, uh, there were about 1,800 people that were taking, it was the level five and six exam that I was teaching. So about 1,800 candidates would take that. And that was, wasn't just in the U.S., that was around the world, but it was predominantly the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and then about 40% of those would actually pass the exam. Um, so that's a very small number, as opposed to, I think, for the CFA Level 1 exam, there's maybe 100,000 people that take it um, in, in a calendar year around the world. Yeah. Sure. And um, you said that there's, like, usually to have a background as an actuary, it's an asset in terms of uh, the investment field. Uh, would you feel that's the case? And, like, why is... Is it uh, is it the case? Like uh, even if I'm talking about like traditional portfolio management, for example. Sure, sure. A a probably traditional actuaries are not as much involved on the asset side or on the investment side. Um, traditional actuaries are more on the liability side, so they would be the ones that create life insurance products, um, that do the mortality studies. Um, that understand those pieces, um, but then a smaller set of actuaries work on the asset side, so they still have to understand the liability side, but then they also uh, work on the asset side. So it's not, I would say most, most actuaries would still tend to stay on the liability side. Uh, there are a number of actuaries that once they start emphasizing the asset side, then also want to pursue the CFA examinations because uh, the CFA examinations uh, are a little bit broader in terms of all the investment concepts that they cover. Yeah. Um, so I, I did notice going through the CFA exams that a lot of the material really overlapped what I had studied on the actuarial exams on the investment uh, related exams, but uh, it was just a little bit broader. So there were some pieces that I had not seen on the actuarial exam. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And before we kind of segue into the, the CFA, do you have any, uh, any anecdotes or any like numbers or um, what do you call those uh, stats? Stats, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that you can share with us. Um, uh, sure, sure. There was actually one uh, one project I was working on uh, for a company, and they first asked me, you know, could you could you do a mortality study for us? And I said sure, because actuaries do that quite often. Uh, and they said, but the only catch is we're not going to tell you what what it is. I said, okay. So they, they sent me the raw data. I could do the mortality study. And so I was doing it with another peer actuary of mine. And, and the mortality of the life expectancy was around 20 years. So then we started trying to speculate, okay, what, what has a life expectancy of 20 years? So we became pretty convinced that, that they were trying to design an insurance product for horses because we thought horses have a life expectancy somewhere around 20 years. Well, Finally, I got to uh, fly down to Texas to meet these people, and that's when they told me that, no, this isn't for a horse. This is actually for an oil well. So, okay. so, so we, they wanted me to do a mortality study on an oil well, uh, and subsequently they wanted to design a life insurance policy on an oil well. Wow. So that was one, one of the most unusual products that I worked on that we had to pretend an oil well was a life. and figure out when it was going to die but uh, but it was interesting nonetheless but does it work i mean like did it did they end up uh well that was a 
that was a good good lesson for me in business, and that's I, I guess you kind of ask what what I do, what I've done besides past tense. And so I started in the actuarial career, and then I ventured off on my own and and taught uh, classes for the actuarial exams. But then also I'm a I guess what you would call a serial entrepreneur. So I, I started lots of businesses. Uh, this was one that we were actually able to uh, in the state of Texas uh, create a life insurance company. Uh, we created a policy that was for uh, oil wells, and I was able to convince the insurance department that it was okay to have a life insurance policy on something that was never alive to begin with. So we actually created a policy for an oil well, and uh, we er everything was going great. We passed legislation that we needed in Texas, uh, but then when it came to the marketing aspect, uh, nobody would actually purchase these policies. So it was a, it was a great idea, but uh, we couldn't actually get the sales from it. But but it was it was pretty interesting. And what are the some of the other ventures that you said you're a serial entrepreneur? What are the other some of the other businesses? Uh, you're sure, sure. Yeah, I've done I've done lots of them, and uh, I'm sure if you talk to most entrepreneurs, they would tell you some some have worked, uh, yeah. some some have not worked yeah. as well. Uh, one that uh, that has has worked reasonably well is we uh, I designed a lot of indexed annuity uh, products. Um, that's a special type of annuity uh, that sold. I guess uh, prominently in the U.S., but also other places. Uh, but uh, in designing those, I realized that a lot of people would want to understand how they would have performed in the past because they're indexed annuities, so they're tied to some stock index like the S&P 500. Um, so I created a tool for uh, primarily insurance agents and marketing organizations they could use online they could then compare the different products from the different companies out there. It's called Go Figure Now. It's still, it's still, excuse me, used out there. Um, but they can put in the different parameters for the products and see what would have happened over the last 20 or 25 years for that given product. So it, it made a more of an apples to apple comparisons for the different index annuity uh, products out there. Uh, and I guess uh, one of my recent ones I'm in now is uh, back back with. Some of my partners in Texas that we started the oil well insurance, um, one of them actually started a mobile tornado shelter business. Uh, so, okay, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was uh, fa fascinating that he designed a portable tornado shelter that's industrial size, so it actually houses 32 people. Uh, but he he created a process that it aerodynamically anchors itself to the ground. So he was able to create a structure that's lighter than otherwise would have to be because normally shelters are going to be gravitationally anchored, which simply means if you make something heavy enough, when a storm comes, it's not going to blow away. Well, he, he was able to make it lighter because effectively the tornado shelter will suck itself to the ground when the tornado passes over it. Uh, so it becomes like a suction cup almost. Um, so it's primarily used now in the oil and uh, gas industry. Uh, because these drilling rigs will go from location to location every uh, 30 to 60 days, and they need to pull the shelter with them because these workers are out in remote places, and if a storm comes through, then they certainly need to have somewhere to get protection. Uh, so it's, it's really a, a fascinating thing that uh, he was able to design and patent. So it's, uh, it's really cool. But I, I had a connection with him before, and he simply needed somebody to analyze it from a financial perspective. So that's how how an actuary and a, a CFA got involved with tornado shelters. Well, but how often does it happen that you need uh, to have a, a shelter? I mean, 
in the let's say I'm working in an oil field and uh, I guess what's the probability? I guess you would know the probability. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, certainly the the probability of being uh, struck by a tornado yeah. is extremely small. That you know, as it is with lightning or anything, there. You know, the bigger risk for the workers out in the oil field is probably when they're driving down the highway, um, because that, that's where they're going to be more likely in accidents. But the problem is where these drilling locations are, I mean, there's there's nothing around them for, you know, maybe 30 kilometers. So they literally have nowhere to go. And also, uh, they are spending so much money uh, drilling that they don't want to shut it down just because some bad weather is coming. Yeah. I mean, they want to keep working as long as they can. So it's it's worthwhile for them to have a shelter on location so they know, okay, a tornado is really coming. There's a tornado warning and we've got 30 minutes. Then in 30 minutes, they can obviously get inside the shelter, yeah. but they don't have time to drive somewhere else and get away from it. Um, so so that that's why it's worth it for them to have it on location. Uh, then we also designed the shelter so it's, it can be used for other things like it, it's air conditioned so that if it's really hot they can go take a break and have, you know have lunch in there or something so we try to keep it for other uses. Nice, interesting. What, what's the name of the uh, of that company that builds? It's the... called uh, Red Dog Mobile Shelters. Okay, um, so awesome. you can look that up and actually a website is reddogprotects.com. Um, you can you can look that up there, but it's a uh, watch watch some of the videos on there. We had a blast test on the uh, shelter so we could verify that the aerodynamic anchoring was going to work, and it and it clearly worked. I definitely want to watch in the, that in the blast test that we like what you like you faked a tornado or something or <laughs> yeah, they set off a huge explosion down near San Antonio, Texas. They have a research farm down there, that's and so beautiful. that that's where they test a lot of these things. But it was a I, I don't. I don't know explosive terms very well, but uh, it'll tell you how many tons of explosion uh, went off. But it, uh, it's pretty cool because they had it in very slow motion video, um, so you can see the shock wave actually hit the tornado shelter. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely include that in the show notes, yeah. although it's not totally related it's, it's to the CFA. Cool. It, yeah, it's, pretty, it's definitely very cool. Um, and hopefully maybe post some videos of that as well. Yeah, we'll oh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Awesome. And I guess maybe we can do the, the segue into your, your latest project, which is called Past Tense. Um, so maybe, you know, if you can talk about what it is, uh, how it got started, uh, and then share, share these stories with our listeners. Sure, sure. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I was teaching the actuarial exam, started, started that in probably 96, uh, and then really taught those um, all the way through about 2008, 2009. So I was in that for over 10 years. Uh, but what happened along the way is they uh, were notorious for changing the exam structure. And so they would either make more exams that were smaller, or they would make fewer exams that were bigger. And so it was a constant battle then for the seminar providers to keep pace with what the changes were. Um, and so uh, initially I was teaching two of the exams that were required to be taken by all the actuaries, the two essay exams. Uh, but then they decided they were going to split it up into different tracks. And so you had some actuaries that were focusing on investments and some on health insurance and some on pension. So they effectively fragmented the testing market, uh, if you will, and so there weren't as many potential customers that you could have because there were fewer uh, taking those examinations. So along that process, I started thinking, wh where could I apply my skills and want to uh, do that uh, in another, another field that had similar exams? And the CFA is one that kept coming to mind because I 
I heard from other actuaries that had taken those CFA exams that they were good exams. They were very related to the actuarial exams on the investment side and just seemed, seemed to have a lot of good potential. Um, and honestly, the one thing holding me back from wanting to jump over there and teach it is, did I really want to you know, go take three examinations? Um, because you know, I had taken my actuarial exams a long time ago. I had worked for a long time. And you know, like a lot of other people, I'm sure contemplating this, do you really want to go invest that time? Because I realize it's a lot of time to invest because if you go in it half-heartedly, then you're not as likely to succeed. Um, so, so I finally made that commitment that I was, I was ready to uh, jump in. And so we somewhat uh, launched past tense and uh, my beginning the examination process at the same time, just realizing it was going to take, take me some time to get through the exams and then also take us some time to get up and running with past tense. So we were doing that together. Uh, but I teamed up uh, with uh, a partner of mine that uh, was also had worked in the past on actuarial education. And so we, we wanted to design something that could really help people prepare for the exams. Um, and so uh, their specialty was on the ADAPT uh, engine. Uh, and ADAPT is the software that we use to run our test bank from the CFA exams. And it's been used extensively on the actuarial side uh, to prepare actuaries for those multiple choice type mathematical exams. And so I was really intrigued with uh, layering that in there along with um, then one of my, my key roles was developing the online videos uh, because I realized over the years that uh, while you can teach live videos, it's hard for people to sustain their concentration for an eight-hour day in a live seminar. Um, they simply, I, it just takes too much focus. And in fact, I would have some people by the end of the day, they wouldn't even pretend to be listening anymore. They would put their head down on their desk and close their eyes. Um, not, not because they didn't want to learn, they were just exhausted uh, by the end of the day. So I thought online videos seemed to be the way to go, and I had done some of that on the actuarial side, uh, because it allows the user to watch it whenever it's convenient for them. They can re-watch certain sections. They can only watch as much as they need to before they start losing concentration. Um, so, so we decided that was really what uh, we wanted past tense to be about. We wanted to create a product that uh, not only was going to help um, candidates uh, have a greater chance of passing the exam, but to do so in an efficient manner. Um, because everybody has limited time and they, they usually say it takes about 300 hours to pass uh, each of these CFA exams. Well, you know, one, we would like to minimize that time they have to study, but also we certainly want to increase their odds of passing. Um, so the videos, we took great pains into making those videos as interactive as you can in an online setting. Uh, so it's not um, just looking at somebody sitting at a desk. Um, it's actually uh, me trying to be engaging while I'm talking, but then also we layer in there other notes and other uh, cartoon characters and visual aids that really emphasize uh, what the person is learning. So they're seeing it, they're he hearing it, um, all of that is going together. Uh, and then on the ADAPT side, uh, it's not simply a question bank. Um, we, we wanted to use the ADAPT engine because it's worked so well on the actuarial side that it starts you out with easy questions, gradually gets them harder and harder uh, until you're actually exam ready. 
uh, because if you just start out at exam caliber questions, then you're going to get frustrated because they're harder than what you're ready for. But on the other hand, if you always just do easy questions, uh, then you're really never going to be ready for the exam. Uh, so this just gradually gets you there. And it's very objective because it, it focuses on what's called an earned level. So that actually lets the candidate know when am I going to have a high enough earned level that really says I'm ready to take the exam. Um, because that's a big piece of passing the examination is simply having the confidence that you're going to pass the exam. So it really is a mental game. And we think we can give candidates that confidence because if they've done enough of the adapt practice questions and they've achieved that earned level of at least seven, then they should know walking into the exam that they are ready to pass the exam. So it takes the guesswork out. They know that they're going to be ready for it. And uh, the adapt, uh, actually, I tried one of the, uh, the exam on past tense, um, uh, but I was wondering, the adapt system, does it detect, let's say, for example, if you're not, uh, if you're not good, like you're only passing easy question, uh, and every time there's a harder question that comes up, like you fail it, what, uh, what happens then? Does it keep uh, coming up with easy questions or... <laughs> It does, yeah. It, it keeps track. So it has, you know, a, a plethora of easy question and hard questions on, on each topic in there, and it will know if you're not doing well on the harder questions. And so actually when you take an exam, if you do poor enough, it's going to actually move you down the earned level. Um, so it's going to say, hey, you really need to do some, some easier ones until, until you're ready. Uh, you can also customize the quizzes that you're taking and You, you may do really well on the ethics questions, but you're not doing so well on the economic questions. So you can just focus on the economic side. So it's going to allow it to customize to, to get you there. But, but really that biggest thing I think is, is flashing that earn level up there. So you know that, okay, I really am uh, achieving my goal, but, but also it can scare you too. If you're, if you're doing those exams and you say, man, I, I can't get past this earn level of four. Well, that's probably telling you you're not really going to be ready to take the exam. Um, so that may not be what you want to hear, but you'd probably rather hear it before you walk in the exam room sure. that, you're, that you're really not ready. And is there a particular or ideal candidate that should uh, take the uh, past tense exam? Uh, yes. Yeah, it should be somebody that is serious, that wants to, uh, wants to take the exam. And, and they, they need to actually uh, focus on that and they need to uh, really want to, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. They, they, uh, they have to be a serious student. So if you're just going in there haphazardly and trying to do a couple examinations, uh, you're not going to get as much out of it. So it needs to be somebody that's really diligent and wants to focus on that. It's also probably going to be a bit more appealing to those that like uh, competition. And, and this competition can even be competition against yourself um, that you're, you're always wanting to improve. So if you're somebody like that and you're going to see, okay, I start out with an earn level of three and I want to keep improving that uh, to get to that seven at least, and that motivates you, that's going to be a good thing for you. Um, but, but I found during the, my study process for the CFA exams that if I was simply reading the material, um, then I wasn't going to be as um, focused on actually learning it. Um, I found like I was really retaining a lot more when I was doing practice questions and getting feedback immediately on those uh, practice questions. So I think that's 
another big benefit of Adapt is that you're you're actually getting that feedback, so you know how it is that you're doing. Okay, I see. And you recommend doing the Adapt uh, Pastance uh, exam instead of the standard uh, practice exams, or in addition, is it like complementary or? Uh, yeah, I, I would say definitely in addition to you. So you can do the uh, the mock exams and the practice exams that uh, you can get directly from the CFA Institute. Um, I think you definitely ought to do those. I mean, after all, they're the ones that are creating the real exam that's coming up. Um, so it behooves you to to do the exam. The problem is that that's only one, maybe two exams um, that you can do. Uh, so that that's really not enough to get you ready for the real examination. But I definitely think you ought to do that one. But I, I would recommend somebody doing about seven uh, full exams before they actually walk into uh, the real exam. Uh, because you, you don't want to have any surprises when you walk into the real exam. You, you want it to feel very comfortable. And so if you do enough practice exams, uh, then you're going to really feel relaxed when you're in, in the exam room because a lot of the questions, not that you've seen the exact question before, but you've seen something very familiar, and so you know exactly how to address it when you get there. And um, do you provide, uh, let's say, uh, detailed answers to wrong questions? Let's oh, say we someone, do. Yeah, if someone gets the wrong question, do you say, okay, well, this is why, you know, why this yep. is wrong and what you can do next time? Yep, we, we absolutely do on all the questions that are in the, the question bank when you go through and you do it and, and you have the option, you can get feedback right away after you do each question or if you wanted to treat it more like an exam, then you can wait until the very end and get that feedback. But uh, yes, it's very detailed answers for each question and in fact, like you said, if you do the, do the wrong answer, then it's going to explain why that was wrong. And that's really important because it's not just that you want to know it was wrong, you want to understand why it was wrong so you don't make that same mistake again. Yeah, for sure. And uh, are you timed during the exam? Like, Because uh, I noticed there, I, I, I did part of an exam and like, there was a, a clock running down. Yes, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a countdown clock and uh, you have the option, you know, if you need to pause it for some reason, you can do that. But, uh, you know, certainly you ought to treat some of them that, you know, this is a real exam and you, you got to treat it just like you would be in the real examination room. But yeah, it's cer certainly timed and, and the times are the same as you'll have during the, the real CFA exam. Okay, and I just wanted to ask uh, about the videos. Um, like, how do you study yourself? Because you said you, uh, you you were studying for the CFA recently, and do you use the videos, or do you you said you're reading a bit, but you don't find it the best way? Like, yeah. apart from doing the exam, like, for example, me, I never used videos. I just read the study guides and material. Uh, like, what's, yep. what's your method? What's your best recommendation? Yeah, my, my method was, and I, and I just finished uh, up, actually, this last June, I took the level three exam. So I, yes, I, went, I went through them in the, the last year and a half to, to get those out. But uh, when I started out and took level one, I, I would say I overstudied. Um, but I was okay to really overstudy and learn more than I had to to pass the exam because then I knew that I was learning it not really just to pass the exam, but I was also going to be writing a curriculum for it. So, so I needed to, to learn it at a, at a different level, I guess, than just passing the exam. But I didn't um, watch any videos uh, when I was going through them. Um, I did do uh, the practice questions that were at the end of each reading in the, the CFA curriculum. Um, I thought those were very helpful. I didn't necessarily do all of them because some of them I could tell um, this isn't really an exam type question. 
Um, and so if I thought it wasn't really an exam type question, then I wasn't going to waste my time uh, trying to do that. But the ones that were exam type questions, then I would certainly do those at the end of each reading. Um, I also made sure um, that I budgeted my time uh, well. Uh, and I, I think it's best if you start with the end in mind. Um, and so you look at when the exam date is, and then you build your schedule going backwards. Um, so don't, don't try to do it forwards, but you need to do it backwards. Um, so that means the last you know, two to four weeks, whatever is best for you, needs to be reserved for doing practice questions and just solidifying what you already know. Uh, I would often tell uh, those taking the actuarial exams that at some point you have to be comfortable that you're not going to know everything and you need to actually stop trying to learn new things. Uh, because if you know enough at that point, say it's three weeks before the exam, then don't try to learn new things. Rather, invest that three weeks in really getting down what you already do understand. So as long as you get that down, then you're going to know enough to pass the exam. Um, so that's what, what I would do towards the end is I really would focus on taking uh, practice tests, uh, going back and doing some of those practice uh, questions because that's where I found I got uh, the biggest, biggest bang for my time at that particular point. Okay. And I'm, I'm wondering, actually, all these videos and exams you probably have from a back-end side, from your side, from past-end side, you're able to see, let's say, where people fail the most or what areas of the CFA exam that candidates have the most difficulty with? Is this something that you that you can see? Uh, yeah, you you will see in the videos, and I think on the level one videos, there's just a little bit over 40 hours of actual video time uh, that a student could watch. Um, and it is going to be slanted towards the more difficult concepts that are harder uh, for people to understand. So, you know, it's not going to, we're not going to spend as much time on something that's obvious. You just, just need to read it or know it. So we do uh, spend spend a bit more time on that, uh, but but I think the videos are a great use of somebody's time, especially somebody that you know is maybe coming at the CFA examinations from a background that they didn't learn as much of this in in school. So they 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 weren't necessarily a math major or a finance major, and so they could have been an accounting major, and so they really know the accounting, but there were some of the options and derivatives that they really just didn't work with on the on the accounting uh, studies that they had. So the videos themselves, as I mentioned, it's, you know, 40 hours, you can watch them. And if you're going to study for 300 hours, you know, you're looking at 13% or so of your time is going to be allocated to video watching, which is a really small percentage. Uh, but I think that's drastically going to increase your uh, retention uh, because you know you can read it and you can watch it, and so then you're just going to be able to learn it that much faster. And do you recommend watching the video after reading or before? Or I I think that varies varies by the student. I think uh, you know you can do it different ways. I, it depends on what your background is. As I mentioned, you could have an accountant that's taking the CFA exams. Uh, for an accountant, they're going to go through the financial reporting section and they're likely going to be very familiar with a lot of it because they've done accounting in their career. For them, I would recommend watching the videos, then doing the practice questions, and if they actually are able to do all the practice questions that are at the end of the reading, then, then they can move on to the next reading from there because they're already familiar with it just because of their background. So that's one way you can 
you can shorten it a bit by watching the video first. But some people may get to a topic and they start watching the video and they realize I can't keep up with it because I wasn't familiar at all with it before. So then for them, they're probably going to need to read something first before they watch the video to, to get the maximum benefit. Um, the other thing I, I recommend is you can watch some of these videos more than once. So you can watch segments of the video and then do the reading and get through all of it at one time. Um, there could be some benefit towards the end of the study cycle in watching, uh, for example, all of the financial reporting videos in, in just one sitting. So then you can see the big picture really quick because uh, there's so much material in the CFA curriculum uh, that as you're going through it the first time, by the time you get to the end, you really forgot what was in the beginning. Um, and so if you can watch it in a compressed time frame, you're more likely to understand the interrelations that you have. I'm wondering also because recently we had the, the CFA level one exam in June 2014. Um, do you have any feedback from from students who've studied with past tense if they have uh, if they had a you know good good scores on the exams if they were able to pass the exam? With the yes, answer? yeah, we did, we did. We got some uh, very good feedback from those that had used past tense this past uh, June. Uh, on the adapt side, they they really liked the idea that the questions were getting harder. They felt the questions were uh, right on with the exam difficulty. Um, they liked that um, measurability to it. They liked being able to see their earned level increase. And so that did give them confidence that they could carry into the exam room. So all of that uh, was a big benefit for them. And then on the video side, we, we had several comments that people just thought they really were engaging. Um, that the material was presented in a way that made it easy for them to understand uh, and also in a way that uh, they were able, um, they, they wanted to understand it, so they were engaged with it. So, so that was uh, very good from the video perspective. It's oh, really nice. And uh, so far, I think you have only level one on the website. Uh, do you have any plans to release uh, level two and level three? We do. We do. We have plans to, to release level two and level three. Right now, we're still focusing on uh, level one. In fact, we're updating it for the 2015 syllabus changes. So we're going to finish that first, and then we're going to move right into level two and uh, get that out there. So uh, there are plans to move on that. And it, um, you know, we learned going through this time with the level one curriculum that, it, you know, it takes a long time. Uh, it takes a long time to create a good product and you know, 40 hours of video takes a lot more than 40 hours uh, to create because sure. uh, we, we want something that is top quality that's very good for the users. So we, we want to make sure that we, we do it uh, right rather than uh, quickly, I guess. Yeah, because I was watching the video and there's like animation. Uh, it's, uh, it seems it, like a lot of work. It, it is. It is. But we, we realize that's important for the users that uh, they need to stay engaged. Yeah. and. It's, it's a little bit more challenging to keep people engaged in online videos than it is uh, with uh, live teaching. Um, and so that, that's why we wanted to make this as interactive as possible. Awesome. Yeah. And I guess I have maybe one more question, Mike, just to be respective of your time. Um, as we conclude this, this episode, how do you kind of, how do you see the, uh, the, the landscape of CFA prep providers evolving, you know, in the next few years? Because I know, let's say in the last maybe year, two years, maybe there's been quite a, a lot of them, uh, different providers emerging on the um, on the scene. 
um, before it used to be just maybe one or two and the, the main CFA Institute, now there's a lot more of them. H how do you see that evolving? Do you think there's going to be more consolidation or yeah. different sure. providers are trying to target different types of, of, of candidates? Right. Right. As you mentioned, you know, probably historically, uh, Kaplan Schweitzer has been the uh, dominant player and they, st they still are the dominant player. And so uh, they, they provide the study materials to many candidates. Uh, but I think other uh, providers are realizing that there's a market here and there are different types of students that are going to prefer different types of material. Um, so uh, that's one reason we stepped in, that we think the ADAPT and the interactive videos are going to be very appealing to certain candidates. Uh, so I think there is, is going to be um, lots of um, new entrants into this market. Um, and then I think what people will realize, though, is they'll start out jumping into the market. Um, they may realize how much work it is to create quality materials, uh, and then some of them may back out. So, so that might be the consolidation um, that you were talking about. But uh, it's, it's all good news for the candidates, the ones that are taking the, the CFA examinations, because the more providers you have, the more competition there is, uh, the better the materials ought to become. Um, so it ought to really make the questions better, the videos better, the study guides better. All of that should become better with more competition. Nice. And uh, one last question before we uh, wrap this up. Do um, you have any other uh, plans to you know, use the ADAPT and the video on other designation, like, uh, I don't know, MBA or any other types of uh, professional designation? Or uh, just... Yeah, it's actually uh, in the works now. It's, you know, I told you it's, it's been used extensively with the actuarial exams. Uh, it's, it's in uh, beta testing now for the MCAT exam, for the medical examination. Uh, and there's, there's some others that they're working on as well. So it's, it's a technology that can be used in lots of different professional examination processes. Um, and so it just happened to start out in the actuarial world, which, you know, maybe makes sense because a lot of it's based on credibility theory and statistics. And so that's that's how it actually works behind the scenes. Um, but but we're finding that this is going to be a very useful process for many types of examination. Awesome, Mike. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming on our show. Oh, well, I really want to thank you, Mike, for taking the time to uh, to talk to us. It's been really interesting. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.